If you've been with us uh, for the past few weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a series called One Another. And we're taking a look at uh, these various statements we read throughout the New Testament uh, where God, or through New Testament writers, inspires us to live a certain way, to interact with each other in a certain way. And, and there's over 50 of these uh, one another's throughout Scripture. Uh, Bill has been teaching through that uh, for the last few weeks, and like I said, he's on vacation this week, so um, he gave me freedom to, to teach on whichever one you want. But some of these uh, one another's that we see, uh, we see, for example, up here on the screen, uh, love one another, <clears throat> pray for one another, forgive one another, um, encourage one another. And it's, it's this last one, encourage one another, that, that I want to talk to you about this morning. And so uh, before I get into it, I, I'm just curious, like when you first read that, um, when you read those words, encourage one another, what comes to mind? Give me, give me some answers here. Speak up. What, what, what comes to mind? Don't quit. Don't quit. Okay, absolutely. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't give in. What else? You can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? Come on. What's that? Good job. Heard another one over here. You're off track. Freddie, you have the gift of encouragement. Um, <laughs> all right, I heard another one over here. What? Go What's that? They'll win next year. What we're not going to say for the Cubs this year, right? There you go. And there was much rejoicing. So here, here's the thing. I have read the lists of one another's forever. I've been a follower of Jesus for like 20 plus years. And I've read these 50 one another's over and over and over. And I've seen this encourage one another. And I've always read it the same way that you guys just responded to me. You got this, go get it. Um, you're off track. You know, sometimes we need that encouragement. Like, hey, you're going the wrong direction. Um, it is truly encouragement. And, and that's how I've always read it. But I, I, I have to admit that what I failed to do was to do what I tell you all to do all the time, read scripture in context. And so for whatever reason, as I was sitting through this list of, of the 50 plus one another's and encouraged one another jumped out to me, um, I looked to the scripture, crazy concept, I know, to read it and find out what it said. And so I found it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, and it says these words, therefore encourage one another with these words. And if you've been here for the past couple weeks, you've heard Pastor Bill say, whenever you see therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's? It therefore, which tells us there's something before verse 18 that we have to understand, to, to understand the scripture in context. And, and then you read that it says these words, and I capitalized it for you, it's not capitalized in scripture, but encourage each other with these words. Like, wait a minute, okay, so there's certain words that I'm supposed to use to encourage people. I'm like, okay, my understanding of encouragement is starting to, to expand a little bit. And so I, I rewound scripture and I looked back at where this verse lies in scripture and I read these words in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. The NIV that I've got uh, says we don't want you to be ignorant, but you know that word has a negative connotation in our world, even though it's not always meant that way. But some uninformed might be a better word. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. Uh, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with a voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
After that, we who are still alive and are left with it will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. But wait a minute, I thought encouragement was go get him, tiger. You got this. You can do this. I thought encouragement was standing on the sideline of a cross-country meet and cheering the first runner and the last runner across the line. Hold on a second. I didn't know that when Scripture says to encourage each other, they're talking about what happens after we die. In fact, I looked at various uh, translations of the Bible and the section headings. I always like doing that, seeing how different Bible translators um, categorize different topics, different paragraphs. And so the different uh, versions of the Bible, the NIV says, believers who have died. That's the, the heading, the bold heading at, at this paragraph. The NLT says, the hope of the resurrection. The message says, the master's coming, which could be good or bad. Uh, NCV, the New Century Version, says, the Lord's coming. And the New King James Version, the Holman Christian Standard, says, the comfort of Christ's coming. And that hints at that idea of finding encouragement in these words. Uh, my study Bible, one of the notes in the bottom uh, had this sentence in there. I thought it stood out to me, uh, so I wanted to share it with you this morning. It said, death's finality and horror are removed by the assurance of resurrection. Death's finality and horror are removed by the assurance of salvation. Whenever I teach, I always have like a big idea or a bottom line that I want to really drive home and, and build all of my teaching around. And so this morning, my big idea is simply this. Followers of Jesus should face death with confident hope, not fear. Confident hope, not fear. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't have a lot of experience or exposure to death. Um, just in my lifetime, I'll talk about a few, but in my lifetime, it's not, I haven't been graveside or I haven't been bedside with people um, often as they die. Um, I have a very good friend of mine, though. His name is Dan. He is a chaplain at OSF, and he's been at the bedside literally of hundreds of people um, as they have passed and been with the loved ones after uh, their loved one has passed. And you're going to hear from him later today. He's going to, I can talk to you theoretically about this. He can talk practically. He can say, this is what I've observed. This is what I would say to you, the church, um, as you prepare for your own death someday. You see, the reality is we will all die. We, we don't want to talk about it, though. We, we oftentimes want to kind of pretend we're immortal or turn a blind eye to, to that reality. But we will all one day be the primary guest at our own funeral. In fact, I heard it said one time that, that people's uh, greatest fear is public speaking. And their second greatest fear is dying, which one author put means they would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy at the funeral. And uh, so some of us, that might be true. But, but, I, but like I said, I got to be honest, I don't have a lot of exposure to death. Um, I've encountered it recently, um, a couple years ago. Uh, I think it was August of 2014, 2013, I'm not sure. Um, I got a phone call uh, from one of my best friends uh, from back home. Um, he, was, he was the guy I hung out with all the time. I was in his house all the time. He was in my house all the time. I called his parents, mom and dad. Um, his dad was very much a father figure for me. And uh, Russ called me that August and said, my dad took his own life. And I'm like, what? And, and so I went home and was with the family uh, for a few days and uh, in fact, the truck that I drive was his truck. I bought it off of his widow. And so, so every day when I get in my truck, I'm reminded that life is short, that one day uh, death will come. Uh, just a few months after that death, um, I was on a, a student retreat. Uh, we were down in, in Effingham. I was with middle school students. 
And uh, my wife called. And okay, my wife calls, it's lunch, I'm taking the call. And she's on the other end and she says, my dad just died. What? Dad, dad's gone. He had gone to a, a basketball game that night at his local high school, um, came home, went to bed a little earlier than normal. And uh, my mother-in-law went and checked on him because it didn't seem right that he was going to bed already. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just working things out and love you and went to sleep. And she said, love you. Woke up the next morning early, like she always does on Saturdays, and went uh, garage sailing and Goodwill and shopping and uh, came home around 10, 10.30, and he was still in bed, which was not normal, and went in and checked on him and found him dead. He died in his sleep. A few months after that one, I lost another father figure, so three father figures in 12 months. Uh, many of you have heard me talk about my mentor, Lauren, um, and if there's any, any sense of... Um, appreciation for who I am today, it's because of this man, um, because he spent 18 years pouring into me to make me uh, the man of God that I am today. We got the call that, that he had pancreatic cancer, and then that, you know, it wasn't a quick death, although in retrospect it was. It took about nine months to 10 months, but he had time to die, time to prepare for death, and I remember he, it, was, it was kind of his final moment, final lesson for me as his mentor or as my mentor, as he taught me how to die with hope. And I remember getting the call. I was on another student trip. We were on our way to Cincinnati to a missions trip. And uh, I got the call, and I knew he'd been sick. I mean, we'd been talking about it for a long time. He was out in Vegas, and I was planning a trip out there in a couple months to go see him. And he called, and when, he, when Lauren calls, I answer, right? He's one of those guys. When he calls, I answer. And uh, I picked up the phone, and sitting outside of a Jimmy John's in Brownsburg, Indiana. And he says, I got five weeks. The doctors just told me. And I, I, I couldn't make it out there. I went out for the funeral. I couldn't make it out there in time before he died. Some of you are like me. Occasionally death comes knocking in your, on your, your world, on your door. And, and you encounter it as most of us do. Uh, for some of you, uh, death is very real this week. Um, Becky Houghton lost her husband, Denny. He struggled, suffered with Alzheimer's and, and succumbed to uh, his ailments as a result this week. And so I went to visitation and stood by her and hugged her and encouraged her. Got a call from the Hofe family this week. Denise Hofe lost her, her dad this week. And so Bill did the funeral Thursday and I did the graveside on Friday. And for some of you, death is very real right now in your life. And for some of you, death has knocked on your door so many times in your life, you would never wish it on anybody else. But death is real. We will all one day face the end of our lives. Scripture actually says that we should think about death more than life. We read this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Just two verses later, a wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool thinks only about having a good time. As followers of Jesus, as we contemplate the fact that one day we will die, we have to, and that's what this whole message this morning is about, we have to keep in mind the promises of Scripture, the hope that we read about in Scripture. And yet for many followers of Jesus, when we face death, all of a sudden our, that seems to fall apart. And, and my friend Dan is going to talk about that this morning. 
But Paul says to us in Thessalonians, he says, you know, it's kind of a, a challenge and an encouragement. He says, you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And I, I've walked alongside of families as a pastor, obviously doing funerals, and, and, and every family has a different reaction. And some, that funeral is really a celebration of life because they understand and they hold to the promises of Scripture. For others, it just, they melt, everything falls apart, and they, they forget or, or they never believed in what the Bible actually taught about the hope and the resurrection. And so Paul writes to us here in Thessalonians to address this issue. In fact, he was writing because some people in the Thessalonian church had thought that if you died before Jesus came back, you didn't actually have a part in the eternal kingdom. And then so there was this bad theology going around, and, and, and Paul gets wind of it, and so he writes part of Thessalonians to address this. Um, we read it there in verse 14. It says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And it's not a question. He doesn't say, like, do we believe that? He just we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, who have died in him. And then he goes on to say in verses 15 through 18, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul writes to the church as a father does to his children, as a mentor does to his, the people he's mentoring. And he says, listen, you got it wrong. He says, even those who have died already before Jesus came back, they have a part in the eternal kingdom. And, and don't worry, you do too. While you're, if you're still alive when Jesus comes back, you will have a part in that kingdom as well. We will all have a part in that kingdom. And so be encouraged by that fact. Now, if you've been around uh, Christianity long, if you've been in the church much, um, there's an elephant in the room with this passage that we've got to talk about. And it's not the primary purpose of my message this morning, so, but I, I can't let it just lie there and not talk about it. It's this idea of a rapture. Uh, the, the, there's a, this idea, this theology that, that people will be taken away mysteriously. In fact, um, I worded the definition like this for what the rapture, how many people define the rapture. It says, believers will be mysteriously and suddenly removed from the face of the earth, and everyone else will be left behind for a period of trial and tribulation. Um, this word rapture actually isn't the original Greek word. It's a Latin word. It comes from the, the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation of the original text into Latin in the fourth century. Um, that word um, was translated to this, this Latin word rapture. Um, the, the Greek word is actually the word harpazo, uh, which means this. Uh, to seize by force, to snatch up suddenly and decisively, like someone seizing bounty, to take by an open display of force, i.e. not covertly um, or secretly. And, and, and I'm not here this morning to, to debate with you whether the rapture is actually going to happen or whether it's not going to happen or how we're going to translate this passage, but what I am going to challenge you with is how do you know? How do you know? If you hold to the rapture, how do you know that that's actually what it's going to be? And I say that with humility, um, because when I was in seminary, we took a class called Scripture in, in Context and Systematic Theology, and, and in that class, we would take, in Systematic Theology, we would take a topic, and, uh, like the creation of the world, and end times, eschatology, what we're talking about this morning, and, and we would look at all the different viewpoints and perspectives of it, and we look at different theologians and how they addressed it, and Scripture that supports or, or contradicts it. 
And, and we would go through all of these things, and, and at the end, the professor on some of these topics would say, um, I, I would raise my hand, I'm like, well, which one's right? And he's like, you choose. And I'm like, no, 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 like one's gotta be right and all the rest are wrong. And he's like, why? And, and it was just, it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to that idea that, that you can have two kind of opposing beliefs and really we don't have the knowledge or the confidence to know which one is right or wrong. And eschatology is kind of that way. And to give you a point of, of what I mean by that, um, here's what we studied in seminary. Uh, if you look at Revelation chapter 4 through 9, um, the judgments, um, it kind of depends on how you view Revelation as to how you read that book. I, I use the idea of a, of a viewfinder. Remember the kid's toy that has a viewfinder in the circle disc and you put it in there and you flip the thing and you can see the little mermaid you know, story play out? Well, depending on which circle disc you put in your Revelation viewfinder, Revelation is interpreted very differently. If, if you're a historicist, um, then it's still taking place. It started in the first century, and it's still going on today. If you're a futurist, nothing in Revelation has yet happened, and it's all going to take place in the future. If you're a preterist, that means it's completed already. Like, everything happened in the first, second century AD. Like, it's done. It's all history, what you read in Revelation. Or if you're a spiritualist, then everything is symbolic. And it's all just a, a great metaphor for good versus evil. And so it depends on, on which one you want. And I, would, I, I was in seminary. I said, well, which one's right? And he goes, you get to choose which one you like. And I'm like, no, I don't like that. And then we went into Revelation chapter 20, one chapter in Revelation where it talks about the thousand-year uh, millennium. And, and we discovered, like, well, you could be premillennial or you could be postmillennial or you could be amillennial. Well, but not just that. If you're premillennial, are you pre-trib premillennial? Are you mid-trib premillennial? Are you historic premillennialist? If you're a postmillennialist, are you revivalist? Are you reconstructionist? Well, what do we do with all this? I, I personally subscribe to panmillennialism. It'll all pan out in the end, right? <laughs> So I'm not here to debate with you the rapture, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennialism, trib, mid-trib, whatever. But I, I've got to at least admit that there's an elephant in the room that you've got to talk about when you study scriptures like this, okay? But that's not why we're talking today. I want to get back to what Paul was actually trying to convey to us, the, the hope and the encouragement that he was trying to convey to us in 1 Thessalonians. So as I look at that passage, I saw a few things stand out to me. Number one, Christ is coming back as a conquering king. This is core doctrine for us. Jesus Christ is coming back, and he's coming back as a king. Uh, think of, of the conquering general who, who overtakes a city and comes into the city um, to rule and reign that city. Uh, St. Chrysostom, I don't even know how to say his name, uh, said this, when the king cometh into a city, they that are honorable proceed forth to meet him, but the guilty await their judgment within. So we read that Christ is coming back as a conquering king. We also read that the believers who are alive when Christ comes back and believers who are dead will be reunited through a bodily resurrection. There's this sense of God um, taking back, harpazo, snatching what's his. God is looking down on this world and he said, this world is not how I wanted it to be. This world is filled with evil and sin and death and you are living in it and I don't want you there anymore and so I'm going to snatch you believers out of this world and you will be with me forever. I remember reading a story about a guy that had his iPhone stolen and, and he got on Find My iPhone and, and he found out that it was only just a few blocks away and so he, he followed Find My iPhone, walked into the restaurant where this guy that stole his iPhone was sitting there with his iPhone and snatched it out of his hands and said, that's mine and walked out. And God is, and Paul is telling us that Jesus is going to do that. He's going to come back and go down into the world and say, you are mine. I'm taking you out of this world. 
things are about to change. And we read also that believers will spend eternity with God. And this is and, and should be the chief hope of every believer, especially when we're facing our own mortality. This morning, as I said, I wanted to share with you the words of a friend of mine. Um, so we're going to watch them on video. And it's a, it's a lengthy video for a church service. Um, it's about eight minutes long. Um, and I just want you to sit and listen um, to the words of a man who is bedside with hundreds and hundreds of people at the moment that they die. Good morning. I'm Dan Haney. I'm a chaplain at the Trauma Center and Children's Hospital in Peoria, Illinois. In the last six years that I've worked there as chaplain, I've been witness to and present at hundreds of deaths, ranging from the smallest of patients uh, to the very elderly. Many times um, you have the opportunity to be with patients as they prepare to die. Many times you're there with their families and their friends and their faith communities uh, after the person has already passed. One of the things you begin to notice uh, fairly quickly in engaging people in the dying process is how people respond and, and react to their own death and the death of others and their families or their close friends. I think particularly within the Christian faith, those who identify as Christians, the differences are really astounding. Not to be critical in any way because we'll all face death um, as individuals, but we run across folks who are definitely professed in the Christian faith and have been practicing their entire life, really engaged in a faith community, leading Bible studies, very active in the faith community. And it's troubling, somewhat actually um, sad to see that at the end of their time, there are more than questions. They are deeply troubled with what is going to happen at the moment of their death, and not physically what's going to happen. Are they going to struggle? Um, the vast majority of people don't struggle in the actual physical act of dying. But what is their destiny uh, post-death? And so I talk to people and spend a lot of time uh, encouraging and trying to witness at some level to what I think that's going to be for them. Other Christians that I have encounters with and minister to in that process are full of encouragement. They have few, if any, questions and are ready to meet Christ head on. And so what do we say about the difference between those two groups? Is one person's faith better than the other? Is one person truly Christian and one not? I, I don't think so at all. But I think there's a difference in how people have approached their faith throughout their life. I think in one sense, now we have really what I would call cultural Christians, and we have other folks who we would call more religious Christians. And although religion's definitely gotten a bad label, uh, in, the, in the culture today, there is a difference. And what I find is, is folks who have lived their faith more in the sense of, you know, hey, I attend church on Sunday, hey, I belong to a Bible study and I'm doing things, I'm doing, doing, doing lots of things. They've never experienced or they're not able to talk about being Christian, the experience of being in that two-way relationship with Jesus where I understand Christ to be within me, or I understand Christ to be my Lord and Savior, not just as something that we talk about and pray about, but a relationship has been established to where the Word of God becomes alive, becomes authoritative in our lives. And so the promises of Scripture, uh, even at the end, 
in a place that's at some level troubling for all of us are real. And we can hope and we can depend on those promises because that relationship is deep in our hearts. I think for others whose faith may be more on the cultural end of things, where there has certainly been uh, an engagement in faith and doing what we would say all of the right things are, the person has never really entered into that reciprocal, that two-way relationship with Christ in a way that the Word of God and the Holy Scriptures come alive in that person's heart. So when the Bible promises something, when Christ himself says something to be true or not true, um, there's still questions. I don't know if I can count on that. I don't know if I can depend on that uh, at all. And there's great angst um, in people sometimes as they prepare for their deaths. And it's, uh, it's, it's distressing uh, to see people struggle in that way where they know part of the truth, but they've never been in that truth uh, deeply in their lives. So some things I could recommend or, or suggest or maybe speak into today regarding preparing for the end of our life, because it's coming, it's going to happen. Um, each of us is going to die. The first is very practical. Everyone listening to this, whether you're listening or not, everyone needs to get two things and they need to do it quickly. They need to have a power of attorney, a POA for healthcare, and they need to have a living will. The consequences of not having that when it's needed um, is traumatic to families. It's emotionally and, spirit and, and uh, spiritually distressing, and it's unnecessary. Um, so there's lots of people you can do that with. Get that done. The second thing is this. In talking about different responses in Christians to the process of dying, preparing for death, and the process that families go through uh, throughout that whole event, I think... Um, I, th I think this is what I've learned um, from the hundreds of deaths that I've been with. There's a difference. I think it, we need to step outside of our own checklist of faith. We need to move away from the idea of doing uh, and performing and get back to the idea of being. This is what I mean. So many people that I talk to in the dying process will go through a checklist of me, or for me, of things they've done. I've gone to church every Sunday. I tithe, I'm in a Bible study, I'm in a small group. Um, I go on mission trips. And they're going through the checklist, but the fear is actually becoming stronger in them because they're wondering in that moment, is my checklist complete? And I think we all reject that thinking out of hand, but I think in large part, Many, if not most of us, are holding on to those checklists in some fashion. And in times of great stress, um, such as, as dying, um, those things are coming to light. And what can be a beautiful and peaceful event, the act of dying from moving into this life, into the arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, becomes troubled because we haven't really locked on to the simple truth of what salvation is, what it means, and what our final destiny is. Here's something I suggested I think is simple but needs to be done over a long period of time. We need to spend much more time being 
in the presence of Jesus Christ in that two-way relationship of really understanding what the scriptures are speaking to us about his love for us. All of the promises that come through him are clearly evident in the scriptures and being still in that and really spending a lot of our time as Christians allowing that to sink in and really being thankful and, and joyful and grateful for that in this life. So when the time comes, it's not a new experience for us checked off against our list of things of doing, but more of a reflection of our life of being in the presence of and being in this loving relationship with our Savior. It isn't that what makes us different. So I would encourage you, death is not something to be feared. Almost every fear and concern I've had about death has been washed away in the years that I've witnessed it. It's not something to be chased, uh, but it's not something to be avoided in fear and, and trepidation. We're going home. We're going to meet our Savior face to face. And therein lies our destiny. We're going home. The Apostle Paul um, to the church in Philippi, chapter 1, verse 21, says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And he was torn. You know, do I, do I stay with you, the church, or do I want to go home to meet Jesus face to face? I, I love Dan. I love, I love his willingness to share that in ways that I never could have for you this morning. Um, but where do we go from here? Uh, first of all, I would say that you have to understand what the promises are. You have to know those promises, which means you have to be in the word. You have to wrestle with that question of what happens after we die. It's a worldview question that every human being has to answer. And for us as followers of Jesus, we say we find the answer in here. And so find ways to dig into the scripture, to, to find books and resources that will help you understand what happens after we die, what we believe happens after we die. I remember I did a, a teaching with our high school youth group about five, six years ago called Supernatural. Um, we let the students choose a topic, and they, they wanted to really dive into this um, kind of point-counterpoint of, of God, Satan, heaven, hell, angels, demons, and, and we got into to eschatology and end times, and um, it was a fascinating, you know, eight, ten-week study that we did, and, and I challenged me as, as their pastor, as their youth pastor. I had to dig into this stuff to, to really understand, and what I was confronted with the reality is, is that most of my beliefs um, at that time about what happens after we die were probably shaped more by the philosopher Plato than by scripture. And, and I had to dig into to what the Bible actually says. And, and there were a couple books that I read that I would recommend to you. Uh, one by N.T. Wright called Surprised by Hope. Um, and in this book, he, he takes scripture and, and he just, he's an incredible theologian. Um, he's got an entire commentary in the New Testament. I would encourage you to read. Um, but... It, he takes this idea of what happens, the study of what happens after we die, and he really does an incredible job of unpacking it in ways that, that all of a sudden, as I now read scripture, um, as, as N.T. Wright has helped me view scripture through what I think is correct interpretation, um, that what happens after we die come, has come to life for me. And I, I read passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and Matthew 25 and Revelation, and, and it's just presented with a whole new light as N.T. Wright talks about, and you'll have to read the book to understand this, life after life after death. And then the other book I read at that time was Heaven by Randy Alcorn. 
a pastor who just went on this, this uh, intent of studying all the passages that talk about heaven and just letting scripture speak where it speaks and just be silent where it's silent. And so he, he tried his best to admit his own biases and remove those as much as possible, which we know is difficult. Um, but at the end of the book, he does have an addendum, and he says, you know, I, I don't know that the Bible actually says this, but I'm hoping for this, right? I would love it if heaven was like this. But most of the book is this is what the Bible directly says about heaven. And it was a fascinating read for me because it exposed me to an understanding of heaven that I had never really understood before. And so I would give those two books to you. There's probably more out there that are, are great resources as well. But the biggest challenge for me to you today is to know what this book says. To understand why Dan Haney can get on this video and say, in the face of death, which we will all face, we can have hope and there is no fear. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for that revelation of your scripture to us not just academically, intellectually, but deep in our souls, in the place where our hopes and our dreams reside. Father, would, you, would your spirit speak to us and shape us and mold us? Father, would we let go of, of false teaching and, and false hope and hold on to the confident promises of Scripture? Father, would, would you inspire us to not be afraid of death, but to, to embrace it, not to run towards it, but to embrace it when it comes, knowing that you are the giver of life and you are the taker of life. And we trust you completely with that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.